The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Mei Fang, former Wall Street Journal correspondent covering China and Hong Kong. She is currently a fellow at the D.C.-based think tank New America. Her book, One Child, The Story of China's Most Radical Experiment, came out earlier this year. Mei, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thanks for having me. Some people might start a book on China's one-child policy with its implementation, first in Sichuan in the late 1970s and then nationwide in the early 1980s. You chose a different jumping-off point, the 2008 Sichuan earthquake. Why did you do that? Well, I felt, you know, the way I felt that one part of the book was to tell what was the Effects of the one-child policy and some of the rather unexpected, you know. But the other part I felt was to weave a story because a lot of the work that I have stands off the work of social scientists and economists and demographers.、Uh, but my task I thought was to make it a story that would compel the reader, an everyday reader. We're not talking academic, very specific one, to come along with me on this journey. So I chose the Sichuan earthquake because, for me, it was at least a launch point off to into this whole business of the one-child policy. Because in 2008, I was in Beijing, and my brief was to write about the Olympics. That was the big thing that all of China was gearing up towards. And I, I wasn't writing about sports; I was writing about it from the economic, political, you know, business kind of a story. And then the earthquake happened, and that sort of threatened to derail the、uh, whole story that China had prepared. The earthquake was a major one, China's biggest disaster. Over seventy thousand people were killed. And initially, I covered the story like it was just a natural disaster. You know, it, to, it, the, this, the, the connection between that and the one-child policy was not immediately apparent. What I later discovered was、um, not only were seven out of the seventy thousand people were killed, a, a big chunk of them were children because、um, the they were killed in the collapse of schoolhouses that were poorly built, and then、um, and then later on I discovered that many of the children killed were also one child. The only child, because this was the issue. That area near the epicenter of the earthquake was actually a, a, a test pilot project for the one child. Before they launched it nationwide, they weren't absolutely sure it could work, so they experimented in different areas. And this area, because it was very poor and very populous, was chosen. So, of course, the huge irony was thirty something years down the line,、uh, many people lost their only children. In the earthquake, so that was I felt a very dramatic、uh, point to sort of seize the reader's interest and bring them along on the journey with me.、Mm-hmm. Much has been made of the fall 2015 change in policy that now permits couples to have two children, but you report on a county, Yichang, where couples have been allowed to have two children since 1985. What does Yichang's experience tell us? Well, Yichang and several other of these secret experimental two-child zones 
have been doing this for about 25 years, right? So what the data showed from these places was very suggestive of what this suggested two-child losing might be for all of China. And one, it showed that even when the uh, restrictions were loosened, many people didn't take advantage of it. There was no expected baby boom. Secondly, they found that with loser restrictions, there was a, but there was, however, a, a tendency, uh, uh, the sexual imbalance ratio was much less than in other parts of the country. So, so those were, you know, so that suggests to me that perhaps with the loosening of the nationwide process, at some point the gender imbalance might, you know, uh, be corrected or, or hopefully mitigated, not, not as bad as it is right now. China has the greatest gender imbalance in the world today. Uh, but it also suggests that the the reason for this reversal, which is to have more people, more workers, uh, a more vibrant workforce, isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. You said secret. Yes. How do you keep that secret? Well, all these areas, um, they, they were not allowed to talk about it. They were not allowed to report their whole process. Um, they didn't want, um, the, the planners didn't want all these people swarming to these areas and becoming refugees, you know, birth refugees uh-huh. to come here and give birth. Um, so I talked to many family planning officials and they said, you know, we were really proud of our results. You know, we were able to keep the birth quotas. We went, we didn't have to employ such coercive measures, but we were never allowed to talk about it outside of, you know, the region. <laughs> That's so interesting. Looking back, some demographers now say that China's birth rate would have fallen significantly without a one-child policy. That might be true, but how would the authorities in a very poor China in the late 70s and early 80s have known that? You frequently quote a phrase that many Chinese said then and continue to say now, ren tai duo, there are too many people. Mm -hmm. There really are a lot of Chinese, especially in urban areas. Well, I can understand the reasoning for it at its inception because if you look back, you know, fall back the midst of time 30-something years ago, China just coming out of the Cultural Revolution, very do-it-poor, tons of people anxious to climb up the economic ladder. You can see why, um, you know, an idea or a concept as radical, this might take root or flourish. But balance against that is it went on for 35 years. So, uh, you know, against overwhelming, you know, pile up of um, data that showed how wrongly it was going and all the ruinous kind of effects it was having. So what if you can be, you know, if you can take the point of view that, well, it was kind of a wrong approach initially, but, you know, understandable given, you know, where China was at the time. But how can you explain why it went on for 30-something years without them, you know, altering course, especially when they had to, all they had to do was look around them and their neighbors, <laughs> who were also lowering birth rates and growing the economy, but without having to resort to anything as drastic. And what's your answer to that? Why didn't it change sooner? I think one of the reasons was because in order to make this work, they generated a huge and vast machinery. You know, this was one of the most intimate things that you had to do. And that once that vast machinery was set in motion and it was also fed by all the fines that was received by people who broke it, um, it was very hard to dismantle that or take it down. In many poorer provinces, it wasn't even a question at some point of wanting to enforce it. There were actual cases where they encouraged people to break it because they could collect all these nice set of fines. You know, it's, it's, it's like easy 
revenue in a way. So, um, I, you know, this is one explanation people have for why it took so long to dismantle this. You describe quite a number of unintended consequences of the one-child policy, some of which will probably be familiar to those who follow China, such as the skewed gender ratio, the little emperor's phenomenon, the rapid aging of the population, and the decreased size of the workforce. What should people know about these realities and their impact on Chinese society? Well, um, so in a, in a nutshell, too old, too male, and too few, right? So that's kind of the the, the, the problem with China now. A it's new slogan. <laughs> too male, too old, too few. You can see that. Yeah. So too male. You know, when uh, China is very patrilineal, um, they value the male line. It's not the only place, obviously, where they do do that. Uh, but obviously, when you force people to choose and narrow their choices down to one. Then you know there's less of a tolerance for 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 girl children. I'm going to have to choose one. I'm going to choose a boy. Many people made that decision that way, and the consequence now is you have 30 million more excess men, as you call it, guangguo bear branches, um, and you know that's about the size of Canada. And you know unless China imports a, a, a Canadian-sized population of women to meet the needs of these young men, or not all of them are young now too, bachelors. Um, these are, you know, men with no potential to marry or have families of their own. So this is not a, a great situation, a huge gender imbalance. Any society with a big gender imbalance is typically not a happy one mm-hmm. or a stable one. Uh, and whether it manifests itself in war or crime, um, we don't know for sure. Crime definitely is a strong correlation between areas with big gender imbalances and crime rates. Um, that's one issue. Too old. Um, China is a, the fastest aging society now. Japan is currently, you know, the oldest society, right? But China, uh, by 2050, one in four uh, uh, people in China will be retirees. And that's not a function of the one-child policy. That's just simply a function of the fact that we are all uh, living longer. Mm-hmm. That's true. But the problem with the one-child policies is vastly reduced the number of people to support this huge aging tsunami. Um, so, you know, I mean, like China, uh, the working ratio, the ratio of working adults to retirees is something like five working adults to one retiree. In a matter of 20-something years, that's going to shift rapidly to one and a half adults to one retiree. And that's just not a vibrant economy. That's not what you need to grow going ahead. So in the, the analogy I've, I've used to describe the one-child policy, it's, it's like dieting. It's like crash dieting, to mm-hmm. be specific. You know, it's not always a bad idea for to lose weight, most of us could stand to shed a few pounds, uh, but it's the way you go about it. You know, do you eat sensibly and exercise, or do you just live in nothing but you know lemon water? I mean, so um, this is the equivalent. You know, they wanted to do this so fast, and as a result, they have all these huge side effects uh, that's going to take more than a generation to unwind. Mm-hmm. There seems perhaps to be one positive outcome of the one-child policy, and that's for urban girls who have many more opportunities than generally was the case in the past. Could you talk a bit about some of those benefits? Well, certainly if you were a female born after 1980 in any urban setting, probably your chances of getting better educated or better fed is 
as better than any other time in modern history for a Chinese woman. <laughs> so, you know, because you had no siblings to share with, you know. So as a result, we saw these numbers of huge numbers of women entering higher education, graduate studies. So that was good. But you might also argue, did you need the one-child policy? Because we saw those same kind of advances for women in other parts of the world where um, economic advancement happened, right? So you might argue this whole chicken and egg, maybe it wouldn't have sped up the process so much. Yes, definitely not having siblings helped women. But, you know, we see women in Taiwan or South Korea or other parts who also, you know, um, as the country grew economically, also achieved significant gains, you know, educationally, certainly. So, um, you know, it's a bit of a mixed blessing on that one, I think. In the area of perhaps unanticipated negative consequences, increasingly hostile attitudes toward women and feminism, from women hold up half the sky to leftover women, the shrinking size of the labor force will lead to reduced tax revenue and consumer spending, diminishing productivity. Could you talk about these phenomena? Well, that's a long list there, Margo. Well, you know, one of the big questions here was, you know, now China has a a reduced population of women, right? Um, Theoretically, you know, this should mean they have an upper hand, right? If you go by economics, right, scarcity creates demand. But I, my thinking is, and I, and I see these trends now, is that I don't necessarily see that way because the structural underpinnings of Chinese society is still very patriarchal. There are very few women in, you know, the, the higher echelons of uh, politics or business. So when I see a shortage like this, I think what's going to happen, as we see increasingly, is a, is a backlash. Uh, and I think we're seeing that now uh, against feminism. The way we, it happens here, you know, uh, attempts to sort of uh, gain back some of these advances that women have achieved in the last 20 years. You know, China, you know, and this is partly, um, you know, because China is still very gender and patriarchal, it's partly because I think the economy is slowing down. And so, you know, we saw it here in America in the 50s and 60s, after return from the World War II, men wanted to go back to the factories, and they sent the women back to the houses, you know. So I kind of see that going ahead, and we see that a little bit with this whole, you know, creating of labels like leftover women. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the rise in these kind of what they call Confucius workshops, which are not to be confused with the Confucius Institute, but it's a it's like these local domestic workshops that promote these back-to-traditional values. So they advocate for women to um, not be so powerful, to take a backseat to their husband. And in some of the more pernicious cases, they actually tell women, well, if you're too powerful, you'll have a woman will have cancer or to develop cancer or um, or don't fight back if your husband beats you. You know, these kind of, you know, and you think to yourself, what, you know, from women hold up half the sky to this, how did we get here? <laughs> Indeed. You mentioned before the greater life expectancy now. So rural China particularly no longer has people to take care of the elderly. People are living longer. The middle generation is leaving to Mm -hmm. go find work. How is this related to the one-child policy, and what is China doing to address it? Well, as you said, go jumping back to the whole a- a issue of aging. So not only do you have a vast cohort of, of people in a certain age group who are entering their retiree years, their golden years, but there's also a sort of 
uh, separation too, because you know, there's at no point in history can I think of a time in China where there's this huge sort of age apartheid, where the old and the young children are living in the countryside, and the young working adults, you know, are are all in the cities. Now, clearly, that's going to be an issue going ahead. Who's going to take care of these elderly? You know, um, you know, distance, time, everything. And so, um, in recent years, China's instituted some laws uh, to try and do this. You're, you, you are now able to sue your child if he or she does not uh, sufficiently support you. And then there's now a new uh, requirement a few years ago that um, that you have to go and visit your aged parents regularly. You know, that's completely unenforceable. But clearly, all these things are all an indication of the concerns going ahead because now you have a huge aging population, a very abbreviated support system, a very rudimentary social support system, and so I, I really can't help but see this as a major public health disaster looming on the horizon. This takes us a little bit away from the one-child policy, but it seems to me if you have to legislate adult children visiting their elderly parents, you've got a really enormous social problem on your hands that is not related to the one-child policy. What kind of children don't visit their parents if they're nearby. Well, you know, the thing is that, you know, China as a society, as a family underpinning, you know, the, the whole basic structure was, you know, you revere your elders, you know, you you owe your parents forever, for a lifetime. You will always be subservient to them. Your parents will come before your own children. That was the traditional structure. And then all this was sort of dismantled brick by brick with the advent of communism. And then the Cultural Revolution, you're encouraged to turn on your elders, right? And so now there's a sort of attempt to sort of reverse and jump back in that bowl because the state cannot take care of this huge army of old people now. I think many readers will be startled by what you say about international adoption of Chinese Mm. girls and trafficking of girls and women. Could you summarize your findings in these areas? So I think one of the um, aspects that's particularly most interesting to Western audiences is the huge wave of children that were adopted from the China, from China, primarily as a result of the one-child uh, one policy. Now, when the one-child policy was initiated, uh, many uh, parents who wanted to save the quota for, for for the boys that they either hope to be born or you know so they abandon their children abandon your girls and so the orphanages were overflowing and China made the decision at that point to open up the country for international adoption and so over 120,000 uh, children were adopted from China most of them were girls and about 70% of them are here in America American households. So that's the most direct, you know, global aspect, if you might call it, of the one child policy. The problem with that, though, was at some point in the early 2000s, the supply dried up. So the supply of adoptable infants dried up. Partly because the one-child policy took full effect, partly because of technology. People could scan um, and determine the gender of the fetus much earlier, so they wouldn't carry the child to full term if it was seen to be a girl. And but the, at the same time, the machinery had been set up. You know, uh, the, all these orphanages, agencies had been set up, and were accustomed to receiving a certain amount of revenue from adoption. So 
you know, with every shortage comes the black market, and this was what happened. So there were cases, and we don't know because the problem is this whole process is so non-transparent. There were cases of children being abducted, being trafficked. In some cases, even family planning officials were involved in the process. They would confiscate children and put them in orphanages, and some of these children end up in Western homes. And the problem is we don't know how many numbers there, but it's certainly much more than uh, these uh, than what the government says, which is, you know, these are a few rotten apples, you know, but there's not. So that kind of comforting fiction that many Western parents, adoptive parents had, that they were, they were doing a good deed, that it didn't cause anyone harm, they were giving a homes to genuinely unwanted, abandoned children, it's not necessarily true. But the parent, the Western parents have no way of I don't know if they do or don't. I mean, certainly one of the things, I and I write about some of these stories, is uh, there are a certain number of parents and, and the children themselves, because the very oldest of these uh, adoptees are now in the early 20s, are attempting to do uh, birth searches. And one of the things we have now, uh, which we didn't have 20 years ago, is DNA um, testing. Mm-hmm. So that helps, although it's still you know biological needle in a haystack. But I found in my course of my and many interviews with parents that they were very hostile to the idea of of something that would change the the story that they had built, that this was a genuine good deed, there was no wrongdoing involved. They didn't want to know. Mm-hmm. Either A, didn't want to know, or B, they're like, well, it's done. What can I do about it? I don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember uh, one of the interviews I had, I talked to a, a woman who was a media executive out in the Midwest. She had adopted two children from China. And I said, you know, you're in the news. You can't possibly not know about some of this stuff. Did it ever occur to you that your daughter's origins might be, you know, perhaps murkier than you thought? How do you deal with it? And she said, yeah, you know, I thought about this uh, a couple of years ago at Christmas, uh, my daughter was hanging up the Christmas ornaments, and I and I looked at her and I thought, well, at least she's hanging the Christmas ornaments. She's not making the Christmas ornaments because if I didn't adopt her, she'd probably be working on a factory line in China. And I get what she was saying, but you know what is the logic behind it? Therefore, that somehow wealthier people are more entitled to children, even if it involves stealing children, than poorer people. <laughs> you know, we have to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you very much for talking with me today. Well, thanks, Margot. Thanks for having me.